Well, today we're going to be wrapping up this series we're calling Under God. And um, if you've missed either of the first two parts of this series, basically we're discussing about how Christians are handling our rapidly changing culture. And uh, our culture is changing from a Christianized culture to a post-Christian culture. And, you know, for most of our lives, Christianity has kind of seemed like the default religion of the United States of America uh, to the point where it was at, at certain points, and this has changed mostly now, but it used to be there was pressure that even if somebody wasn't really a practicing Christian, if you asked them if they were a Christian, they'd be like, yeah, sure, what, sure am. And they could probably even claim a church. It was probably one maybe they went to as a kid to VBS and they hadn't been back in 20 years, but they would still feel a certain level of pressure to say, yes, I'm a Christian, because that was just something that saturated our culture. And it has changed quite, quite quickly. And, and now the overall religious and moral uh, culture of our country doesn't really line up with traditional Orthodox Christian teaching anymore. And so what we've looked at so far is that as our culture has shifted, maybe Christians haven't handled this very well. We looked at that in the first week, just kind of getting into the topic that at times we've been more fearful and, and panicky and angry about things than maybe we should have been. Uh, last week we looked at some specific examples of how we have kind of not reacted properly to our rapidly changing culture. Now today I want to talk about an underlying belief that many Americans have that I think has made us feel, made Christians feel, as if this change in culture was a battle worth fighting. It was, it was something, it was a war to fight. It was, a, it was a holy war for the heart of our nation. All right? And so the way we're going to explore this underlying belief is by simply asking a question. It's this. Does God have a special relationship with the United States of America? It's a very interesting question. About in 2005, Lifeway Research, they, uh, it's a publishing company and a research company, uh, they did a, a survey of I forget how many thousands of Americans, but they found that 53% of Americans agreed that God has a special relationship with the United States of America. And then when they looked at just those who responded who were evangelical Christians, the number went up to 67%. So almost 7 out of 10 evangelical Christians believe that, yes, in fact, God does have a special relationship with the United States of America that is not shared by other nations in the world. Uh, Ed Stetzer, he was a, uh, the executive director of Lifeway Research at the time, and he said this about the results. He said, God bless America is more than a song or a prayer for many Americans. It is a belief that God has blessed America beyond what is typical for nations throughout history. I am sure that would spawn many theological conversations, but it is important to note that most Americans think, and way more than most Christians, evangelical Christians think, that God has a special relationship with this country. So what does it mean for God to have a special relationship with the United States of America? Well, typically, the understanding that I have gathered is that as long as we obey God, as long as we do God's will, then God returns that obedience with prosperity, peace, safety, and longevity as a country. And um, 
usually when a preacher or someone in my position teaches that, yes, God has a special relationship, because some will very overtly come to the pulpit and say that, yes, God and America have this very close and special bond, they will um, be very quick to toss out verses like Deuteronomy 28, chapters like Deuteronomy 28, to kind of explain how this relationship between God and the United States should work. In Deuteronomy 28, God lays out two paths that are available for his people. He says this, he says, if you, this is Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 and 2, this first path, God says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord, your God, will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord, your God. And then it goes on for a great number of verses uh, listing the blessings that would overtake the faithful people. And then uh, the other path, path two, is the path of disobedience. He says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then there is a much, much larger list of verses of all the curses that will overtake the disobedient people. And, you know, if these verses do apply, do in fact describe a special relationship between the United States and God, this totally perfectly explains why so many Christians would see a changing culture as a holy war to be fought. Because if God is going to bless us based on obedience, then you see people who are taking our culture in a way that is opposite of God's will. They are not only putting in jeopardy this relationship with God, but our safety as a nation. And so it sees this thing, we see it as this thing that we're going to lose out on this blessing from God that has made our nation great and kept our nation safe and kept us successful for 200 plus years. So we have to win this culture war. We have to fight. And I think it explains why a lot of Christians are willing to fight dirty to get back and protect the heart of our country. And then when you hear somebody teach about it, they will also say the, that the main reason why bad things are happening, why whether it's natural disasters or disunity in politics or fighting or, or whatever's happening in our culture, they will say, see, we're disobeying God and he's removing his hand of blessing. We're starting to feel the curses. We're starting to feel the weight of life without God's blessing on our country. And so they will see it as a way that that we need to be very, very careful, and they will push that we need to return to God. And then they will they will often quote verses like um, Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, excuse me, 714. Actually, why don't you go ahead and grab a Bible? We'll flip there because I want to show you some stuff. 2 Chronicles 714. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the black hardback ones near you. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that one that's nearest to you, you take that home. You're not stealing from us. That is our gift to you. We have plenty of Bibles. Don't feel like you're uh, swiping from a church. You're not. Now, if you take something out of the sound booth, that is stealing from a church. But the Bibles are all yours. Okay? So when someone says, hey, you see, this is the problem. Our, our country's falling apart because we've walked away from God. Then they will qu- someone will be quick to toss out a verse like 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. All right? It's on page 364 in the Black Pew Bibles, if you got it. If you brought your own Bible, good luck. You're on your own. I don't know what page it's on. And he says this, and you've probably heard this before. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their 
land. I have heard this on numerous cases, talking about, oh no, our culture's turning from God, and, and people will toss this verse out as the key. This is how we return. This is how we fix our country. This is how we keep America prosperous and the most powerful nation on earth, the most successful nation on earth. And so somebody can take a few of these verses and very passionately and very convincingly impress upon us that we have this special relationship with God that is in jeopardy. The only problem with using these particular verses is they don't say anything about the United States of America. They, don't, they aren't directed towards the United States of America. They aren't pointed our way. There's no mention of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington. There's no, uh, no mention of uh, Colorado or New York or Florida or anything that has to do with our country. These verses, you see, when God spoke these words, spoke these promises and these warnings, he was speaking them in a specific time, in a specific place, to specific people about certain events. And, and the way people convincingly weave this argument that these verses apply and mean that we're in trouble with God or we have a special relationship with God that makes our nation different than all of the rest of the world, the way that they do that is by taking these verses and removing them from their context. They pull them out of the situations that surround them so that you can't tell who it's written to. You can't tell what it's really about. You can't really even tell that these are written thousands and thousands of years ago. These, really, when you just read these verses by themselves, they could apply to any country in any time. And so when somebody takes these verses out of the Bible and reads them in isolation, you, it's very easy to, you know, take these verses halfway around the globe and thousands of years into the future and read them as if God spoke these in 1776 to Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin. But that is not the case. In fact, I want to show you just how important the context is to these verses and what they mean. And so in 2 Chronicles, just using that one, Deuteronomy, we, you can do that with Deuteronomy as well. Um, but in 2 Chronicles, I just want to read a few verses before and a few verses after. And I just want you to decide for yourself, who is he speaking to? Who is God offering this promise of, if you pray, if you humble, I will heal your land? Who is he saying this to? Okay, so we're going to go back to verse 11. Thus... Solomon finished the house of the Lord, that's the temple and the king's house, and all that Solomon had planned to do of, in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Uh, Solomon was the third king of Israel. Israel is one of the huge focuses of the story from the very beginning of Scripture. It starts with God making a promise to Abraham, and God says, hey Abraham, I will make you, your family, a great nation, meaning your genealogy tree is about to blow up. And then I'm going to give that nation of people a place to dwell. I'm going to give them a geographical place to call home. And then through your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. That ultimate blessing being Jesus. And once they get into their land, they, they get some kings. They get Saul. Then they get King David. And the third guy to sit rightfully on the throne is Solomon. You've probably heard about him. He's the original wise guy. And he builds for God a temple in Jerusalem. Up until this point, Israel had been worshiping God in a tent uh, that they built and they traveled with them because they were kind of a nomadic people there for a short term uh, in their history. And so finally, they've got this nation and they're going to plant roots and they're going to say, this is our country and this is where God is going to come and bless us and interact with us as his people. And so Solomon builds this temple. 
And then, it says, and then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him. So who's God talking to? Okay, Solomon. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Meaning that you've done all this hard work to build this temple and I find all of your hard work to be acceptable. This is my place. This is where I will, for this time being, interact with humanity. This is where God and mankind will meet in this temple in Jerusalem. And so he says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, pause. Remember in Deuteronomy that we just read where he says, If you don't obey, I'm going to curse you? He's assuming here, if you guys stray and I start sending you curses like locusts and all kinds of nasty stuff. So let's assume you guys have gone way off board, off track here. He said, in that moment, if you guys are even disobedient, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. What land? Israel's land. And then he even goes on to say, Excuse me, let's go back one more. It says, now, this is God still talking. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. He's talking to Solomon about how the people are going to interact with him in that temple and how he will be faithful to them even if they're disobedient to God himself. And so we cannot, no matter how much we hope that our country would have a special relationship with God that would give us divine protection and a divine appointment that makes us a little more special, a little more protected, and a little more holy than other nations, no matter how much we want that, that doesn't give us the right to take words in Scripture and remove them from the times and places and the people to which they were spoken. We have to preserve the... the the intent that God had when he spoke these words and the context to who he spoke these words to. We have to keep them that way or else they'd stop being the words of God. They become some scrambled mess that we have read our lives into. And so these words are for Israel. And so what is interesting, when you find somebody, a preacher or whoever, sit up and, and say that Israel, or God has a special relationship with the United States and they want to give verses to prove that, they will almost undoubtedly read to you verses that God spoke to Israel. They will read to you promises that God spoke to Israel. And they'll take out the context, or they'll just maybe read some of the context and say, this is how God operated with Israel, so this is how God's going to operate with us. As if God used Israel kind of as a template, that, that this is just how God will apply to all nations who obey him. But that doesn't seem to be the case. In fact, you don't see any instance in the Old Testament outside of Israel, where God makes a special covenant relationship with another nation like that. There's no other nation to which God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. It's only in Israel. And so I'm not just saying that it doesn't count to America. You don't see that anywhere else, even in Scripture. Israel is kind of its own special, unique animal. And so we can't just, without any... any Thought, connect the dots from Israel to the United States and act as if these verses apply to us as much as we might like to do so. And so the, old, uh, the, the, prob the biggest problem with, with connecting those dots, though, is that Israel operated under the old covenant. And since Jesus came, died on a cross, and rose from the grave, we, as Christians, have operated under the new covenant. 
It's a new arrangement and a new agreement. The old covenant was made between God and Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. The old covenant was with God and that country, that they would be a holy nation to, through which God would bless the world, and that blessing came in Christ Jesus. But the new covenant, it is not with a country. It is with all who call on the name of Jesus and trust in him to be saved. And so to try to pretend like our relationship with God is based on obedience or disobedience like Israel was in the Old Testament, that is a step backwards in a way that God did not intend for us to step backwards. We still as Christians operate under the new covenant saved by the blood of Jesus. And so the old covenant, it was about, I think, preparing the way for Jesus' salvation. The new covenant is about receiving that gift of salvation and proclaiming it out to the rest of the world. And so the old covenant was made with a country, but the new covenant was made with people. God has always cared about people. And that means, unfortunately, and this is, this is my stance, and I know there's people that would argue with me on this, and but I don't think God has a special relationship with our country. Um, and there's so much evidence in the New Testament that when Christ came and, and opened salvation up beyond the bounds of Israel, and I think it was Acts chapter 10, Peter started proclaiming the gospel to the first non-Jewish people, and the church began to sp spread all over the Roman Empire to people who were not Jewish. All of a sudden you had churches full of people who had different racial backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different uh, religious backgrounds, different um, nationalities. I mean, we had, you had people from different spectrums of the known world coming together in Christ. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says these words. Here, in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but all, but Christ is all and in all. He's saying that Christ is disassembling the boundaries so that his salvation can go to the farthest corners of the world. It can transcend language, race, and every other boundary that human beings tend to put up there. And so regardless of where you come from, all can be made one and rooted in Christ. Now, the next thing I say, I say carefully, because I was, the second I became a Christian, I was kind of given this idea that God had a special relationship with our nation, and maybe many of you feel that way, and it, this is kind of a, a personal thing, and maybe I'm going to get chewed out. That's after service. I hope not, um, but um, this is one of the things that has most scared me to talk about, and I'll tell you real quickly why. Um, and I'm not pointing fingers at anybody or anything, but um, I've been pastor here a little over 10 years. I have never once had anybody chew me out about anything related to what I've taught out of the Bible. I've had people tell me, I don't think you were right there. Okay, very kindly, and, and, and I know I've taught dumb stuff. I really do. I mean, you got me when I was 23 and a half, and I showed up here, and I, uh, I'm not, still not going to forget that half, Truman. That was 10 years ago, and I ain't forgot it. I ain't letting go of that. So you got me when I was 23 and a half, right? And I, I know that I've grown, and I've probably said some things and taught some things that were not accurate to Scripture, and I, I've tried to come back up here and, and express where I feel I've changed opinions and whatnot. And um, when I've taught dumb stuff, I've never had anybody chew me out. I have been chewed out on multiple occasions about where the flag goes in the auditorium. And I don't mean any disrespect to our country or any disrespect to the flag, but I find it interesting that, that 
there's more care about the ceremony of patriotism than there is the, the, the goal we should have of upholding God's beautiful and perfect word. And so I, I come to this conclusion lightly when, or not, I don't come to this conclusion lightly when I think maybe this desire to say that we have a special relationship with God, we are a holy nation, a city on a hill separated from all other countries, and I, I kind of think that that might be pride. A pride that says, we're better than everyone else. See, we're so much better than everybody else, even God agrees we're better than everyone else. And if God agrees, well, it must be true. Because we get so focused on earthly things, we get so focused on patriotic things. I mean, nobody has trouble putting up flags. I don't have to, t- I don't have to get, stand up here on stage and say, you guys need to really celebrate the 4th of July, okay? I mean, come on. It's too, too quiet around here. I haven't heard fireworks for two weeks, guys. You guys, you haven't kept my kids up and made them have nightmares and scare. Come on, you guys need to celebrate the 4th of July a little harder, okay, folks? I don't have to stand up here and do that, but I have to plead regularly to say, hey, we need to reach people for the gospel. And I'm going to pick on us a little bit. This is something that's bothered me for several months. Did you know that on Easter, we didn't have a single new person? On Easter Sunday, I, we're supposed to bring people. There's a huge study that shows from, I think, Lifeway Research, again, that shows the overwhelming majority of people would come to church on Sunday with you if we just asked them, and we didn't have a single new person. That doesn't mean nobody asked, but that means that not very many of us asked. Why? Is it that we have to beg and plead and be prodded to follow Jesus, but we have no problem being patriotic? Again, I think it's just a little bit of a misguided belief. I think we've gotten hung up on something that's good. It's good. I'm not saying that our country's not great. I'm not saying that I don't appreciate the freedoms we live in. I'm not saying I don't appreciate the cost that so many have paid for that freedom. I mean, I used to sit and listen to my grandpa tell me the stories about when he was on Iwo Jima, and he got shot by a sniper, and I held his purple heart, and I saw the humongous scar, I think it was on this side, on his back where the bullet exited his body. I mean, I appreciate the cost that so many have paid. I'm not trying to downplay the goodness and greatness of our nation, but what happens so often with pride is we take a good thing that God has blessed us with, and we elevate it to make it a God thing. And we've kind of squished patriotism and faith in God into one thing, and it has led us off track, I think, in this current climate, because we feel like we're under attack. We feel as if our culture is changing without us. And the reason I say we're too earthly-minded is because more of us give thought to our American citizenship than to the greater citizenship that we have through Jesus. In Philippians, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Paul again says this, For many of whom I have often told you, And now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in in their shame, with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, our national connection, our patriotic ties are in where? Heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, I think... Too often, we Christians have been guilty of having a higher focus than our heavenly citizenship. We've put greater focus on the stars and stripes than the patriotism we have in God, than the the focus, the eternal home that we have waiting for us in heaven. 
And again, I'm not saying that we don't appreciate the blessings. I've told you in the first week of the series, um, when I went to Bible college and I started kind of getting more familiar with where God was directing all of these students' lives, and there were so many of them that saying, God's calling me to Myanmar, and God's calling me to Malawi. And I was like, where? And, and they were telling all these places. I remember in my dorm room getting down on my knees and praying, Dear Lord, don't take me anywhere from the United States. I want to be here. I like it here. I want to stay. In the-. So I, I love being in this country. But as much as I love this country, I cannot let it supersede my love and my passion to follow Jesus. And you should not either if you are a follower of Christ. So... What does it mean then? If we're Christians in a rapidly changing culture, what do we do? If this isn't a culture war to be fought, if, this isn't, if the people who are leading our country away, if they're not really jeopardizing our relationship with God, that means, one, we don't have to defeat them. Our job is not to hate them and smash them from the existence of the planet. Um, that's not our goal. Our goal is to, like the same as it always has been to reach them for Jesus. And our goal is, as Christians, should be the same as it has been for Christians who have lived in places that were unfriendly to Christians for 2,000 years. We follow Jesus, and we try to help other people follow him too. That's always been our goal. That's always got to be our goal, and we can't let anything jeopardize that, that command. And let me just say, Christians have been around for 2,000 years in cultures that hated them hated them in places that were far more dangerous and far more unpleasant to be a Christian in than 21st century central Illinois. Um, Just when you look in the pages of Scripture, when Paul was walking around preaching these words, he got tossed in jail for talking about Jesus on multiple occasions. Anybody been tossed in jail for talking about Jesus? No. Um, Nero, who was the emperor of Rome at one point in time, he used to take Christians and he would hang them in baskets, cover them in oil, and light the baskets on fire and burn them alive and burn their bodies to light his dinner parties. Anybody been to a shindig like that before? I didn't think so. So Christians, like, we, we, we get a little scared because as our culture shifts, it feels like things are being taken away. We got a long way to go before things get Bible level bad, okay? And Christians have survived and Christians have thrived in those environments for 2,000 years. Why? Because we don't have an earthly directive. We have a heavenly directive. And God cannot be defeated. God cannot be beat. And the mission he has in the world is for Christians to go to all nations and share the gospel with people in all languages so that his salvation might reach all every nook and cranny of this great world in which we live. And that mission will not be stopped. God will see it through to the end. So we will survive our cultural change because our faith is not tied to the successes or failures of our country. Our faith is tied to the unchangeable, unshakable, unbeatable God of the universe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this nation we live in. We are grateful for the freedom we have to come here every single week. Nobody's stopping us. Nobody's trying to bar the doors to the church. No one's going to arrest us. No one's going to lose their job for being called a Christian or giving their lives to you. Father, I am grateful that we have these freedoms. I'm grateful that we have such a nation that is prosperous that many of us in this room, we don't have to even question if we're going to eat today. 
many of us, we get to wonder what we're going to eat today. We have the luxury of choosing what we're going to cook or what food we're going to dig out of our fridge and reheat it in the microwave or what restaurant we're going to go to. We have so much food, we don't even know what to do with it. We throw away food because we didn't have time to eat it. We are so incredibly blessed where we live. And I pray that we are grateful and I pray that we praise you day in and day out for the goodness that we enjoy every day in the United States of America. We learn in the book of Romans that every country exists because you will it to exist, and as long as you will it to exist. And so we are here. Our country exists because you have chosen it to be here. And our lives are here because you've chosen us to be born in this time and this place. And so you are here. But I pray that we would not let pride escalate us above the other nations of the world because you love them all. You love every person. You love every sinner that's ever been born, every sinner that's yet to be born, whether they were here in Europe, Africa, wherever, you love us all. And you sent Jesus on the, to die on the cross so that we all might know you. Not just to save one country, but to save billions and billions of people who would live throughout human history. Your plan is bigger than us. Your plan is greater than us. So let us be a part of your plan. Let us thank you for the United States of America. But let us not forget that it is a temporary earthly government. And our citizenship is in something that is eternal. Our citizenship, our home is in heaven with you. So Father, let us have the proper perspective. Let us view your mission, your salvation, your gospel as the utmost, highest authority in our lives. And let us never forget that again, we don't, we don't live just here, but we have a heavenly, earthly focus as well. Thank you, God, for salvation, and thank you for the life you prepare for us one day in heaven. We are eternally grateful. Help us as Christians never, ever to lose focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.